It is always good, Lord, to be still and to know that you are God. Uh, Most of us have been uh, running since, uh, since the alarm went off this morning, getting stuff done. Uh, being responsible, taking care of our stuff, meeting deadlines, one after the other, trying to make a living. And it's uh, pretty hectic and it's pretty frantic and there's a lot of pressure. And we uh, mark stuff off our list, four, five, six things, and somehow during the day, another six, seven, eight, nine things get on the list. So sometimes it, it seems like we're, uh, we're mice on those wheels just running. So it is good to be still and to know that you are God and that your eye is upon us. The eye of the Lord is upon those who fear him, on those who hope for his loving kindness. The eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who wait for his loving kindness. That that word has the idea of wait and hope. But we thank you that your eye is upon us. We thank you that you know every guy in here. You know everything about every man. Nothing is hidden from your sight. You know our concerns, you know our pressures, you know our worries, you know the weight that each man carries. You know our, uh, you know our hearts and you know what is on our heart even before we convey it to you. You understand our thought from afar and even when we don't understand ourselves and even when we have time Even when we have difficulty at times articulating to you what we're feeling, you already know. That's how well you know us. So that helps us, that you know us that well. What amazes us is that you know us that well and you love us. You know uh, the dark things in our lives. You know the things that we would not want others to know. And we all have them. You know all of those things. But... Because you worked in our lives and you brought us to Christ and we have trusted in Jesus alone as our deliverer, as our Savior. We believe that he is your son. We believe that he died in our place. We believe that he took our sin upon him, all of our sin. And because we are in Christ, we have tremendous privileges. We belong to you. And, and yes, there are still things in our lives that we wish were not there. But you are working on our lives and you are growing us. We wish it was a faster growth, but it's usually a slow growth. But you are not in a hurry. You are infinitely patient. We get on ourselves at times because we get upset because we seem to commit the same things over and over again. And we think to ourselves, and the enemy will tell us, you, you just can't go back to him. You cannot go back again, but we can. 
Your loving kindness is amazing and so is your grace. Make this study tonight productive. We trust the Holy Spirit to take the truth of the Word of God and apply it to each man's heart, each man's wound, each man's concern, each man's pressure. None of us can do that. Only you can. So we humble our hearts. We ask you to take away any uh, defensive spirits that would keep us from listening to you. Don't let us get proud. Remove that from us. Settle us down if you need to so that we can be teachable men and that we can grow and be used by you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this, this semester for, I always hesitate to call it a semester, but uh, I don't know what else to call it. This round, uh, winter, spring, we are looking at the life of David. Now, we did that last fall, but we looked at the life of David through the different men and women that God brought into his life. Some were his friends, some were his enemies, some were uh, encouraging to him, some were detrimental to him. So we looked at David's life through the people that come into his life because uh, the people that come into our lives, see, this is all under the plan of God. It's all under the providence of God. And God uses people. They're just, they're just some of the tools that God uses to shape us and conform us and get us on the road to maturity. So we looked at that in the fall. But we are continuing with David in this current study, but we're looking at David's life from a little bit different angle. We're looking at David and his issues. I'm not quite sure what to call this. I mean, from one sense, I want to call it David and his issues, or I want to call it David and his stuff, or uh, David and his baggage. We've all got our stuff. We've all got things that we're working through and we're dealing with, and we got things that haunt us and plague us and bug us. And uh, Last week, we talked about David and his burden. Or David and his weight, W-E-I-G-H-T. There is something in your life right now that weighs on you more than anything else in your life. Maybe a year ago, it wasn't even in your life, but it's in your life now. Uh, it, uh, it's always there. It's the biggest thing in your life. You wish it wasn't there, but it is there. And it's hard to get away from it because you carry it. It was, um, give me a second and I'll think, I'm going to give you a quote, but I can't remember who said it. It was Thomas Watson who said, whatever the affliction, it is ultimately from the Lord. That's an interesting quote. And you might have a little trouble with it. But as we said last week, even when you look at Job's life, was he afflicted? Yeah. Did he have a weight? Oh, yeah. Did he suffer? Yeah. Uh, remarkable words. After all those things happened to Job, all those things come upon him in chapter 1 so quickly. 
He basically lost everything. He was a man who loved God. He was a man who feared God. Everything was taken away from him within about 45 minutes, including his kids. Lost every one of his children. He tears his clothes and he says, the Lord gives and Satan takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. You're right. He didn't say that. He said the Lord gives and the... See, that's why Thomas Watson said, ultimately every affliction is from the Lord. Now, Satan was the one who afflicted him, but Satan had to get permission from the Father in order to do so. So you see, in a real sense, the affliction was from the Lord. And he understood that. And he goes on in chapter 2, and he says, shall we accept, he said to his wife when she came in, and she, you know, she was bitter over all that had happened, and now he had boils from head to toe, and she said to him, just curse God and die. I mean, she was just worn out with this stuff. And Job said to her, shall we accept prosperity from the Lord and not adversity? And all the TV preachers with weird hair said, that's right. <laughs> but that's not what Job said, you see. So Job had a weight on his life. Oh, was it there for the rest of his life? No. It was there for a season in his life. And he learned lessons He learned lessons in the school of disappointment and adversity that he never would have learned anywhere else. God took him through the lessons. It was a very painful time in his life, but it wasn't his whole life. And then what God did was God removed the affliction and God removed the burden. Oh, and then everything he had lost, God gave back to him. Double. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away, and oftentimes... The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. And once we've learned the lesson, he often gives back. I was reading Obadiah Sedgwick. I love that name. I really do. That's a good name. Obadiah. They're just, it, has a, it has a ring to it. Obadiah Sedgwick. Great Puritan pastor of England. And he was talking about affliction, and he was talking about when we're in affliction and we're in suffering, and there's a weight upon us, a W-E-I-G-H-T. And oftentimes when there is a weight, W-E-I-G-H-T, upon you, you are having to wait upon the Lord, W-A-I-T. But as I was reading his book, he made the point that oftentimes, oftentimes, when we wait on the Lord and we wait for God's timing, God will bring a double blessing out of the affliction. Oftentimes, when we are afflicted, we are asking God to do something specific. We have something in mind we're asking God to do to bless us. But he says to those who wait, God will will oftentimes double that blessing and do something you never imagined. Isn't that interesting? And if you've walked with the Lord long enough, you've seen him do that in your life. And if you... And if you're in the middle of it, be encouraged by that. Now, we're talking about David and David's life. Uh, If if you were with us in our study in the fall, or you've been in other studies on David, you know that David had his weights. You know that he had his burdens. And uh, the thing I love about David's life, when you look at the scriptures, you have these long accounts of David's life, and, you know, from when he was anointed 
by Jesse to be the next king and replace Saul. And, you know, you, we get a lot of biographical information about him. But then you go over to the Psalms. And of the 150 Psalms, David wrote half of them. What's interesting about the Psalms is that oftentimes in the Psalms, David would reveal his heart. Um, he would reveal his stuff. Uh, years ago, when the whole Promise Keepers thing was just taken off, uh, along with that, there was a great emphasis on, all right, let's get guys into accountability groups. Uh, not a bad thing. But a lot of them didn't work. I'd say probably 95% of those groups didn't work. And the reason they didn't work is guys went in with high expectations. But there was also an expectation, right, I'm going to get in here and get to know these guys, and we're all going to spill our stuff, and we're all going to be honest and vulnerable with each other. And um, it didn't always work out. And, you know, there's a reason it, it doesn't always work out, and, I, and I'll tell you why. Uh, there, are levels, there, there are levels in your life of, uh, of pain and hurt and struggle. And if you're a normal guy, you're not just going to unload that on anybody, are you? There are certain things in my life that are so tender and so sensitive, and quite frankly, I don't want too many people knowing about and the only people that I ever divulge those things to are people that I have a track record with, that I have years with, people that I know love me, people I know that would die for me, people that accept me, warts and all. Now that's some, see, in other words, they're people I trust. But just to get into a group with somebody for two, three, four weeks and then start, you know, feeling, I'm not doing that because I don't know if I can trust that guy. I don't know if he's going to record that and put it on the internet. You know what I'm saying? So you got to have you got to have expectations that are realistic. One of the things that you have in the Psalms is that David is completely comfortable in the presence of God. And when David is going through stuff that you read about in his life, if he's being pursued by Saul and they're all coming after him, you can go over to the Psalms and you can find a Psalm where that will correlate with that event in his life. And he just comes clean with God and tells God everything that's in his heart. And we get to read that. And you know what else we get to do? When we read it, we relate to it and we identify it because David was a man's man. David could take any guy in this room. I don't care who you are. I don't care how many steroids you're on. He could take you. He was a man's man. In fact, he couldn't build the temple because he had so much blood on his hands. It had to go to his son. David was a man's man, but he was also a very sensitive guy. You don't always see a guy who's a warrior, who's a poet. But David was. He was an interesting mix and an interesting combination. And by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he was able to identify the deepest things of his life. And, and God used those in the Psalms. And so that's why oftentimes when life falls apart for us or we're blindsided by some event or some calamity or some tragedy, we go to the Psalms. Why? Because we identify with what David was, was expressing to the Lord. One of the things, one of the issues that you find all the way through the Psalms is David dealing with fear. With fear. So that's what I want to deal with tonight. A man and his fears. 
we could spend most of the evening just reading verses in the Psalms on fear. Uh, we can't handle them all, but let's take a few. Let's go to uh, Psalm 27. And on your way to ta- Psalm 27, I uh, wonder how many of you guys remember uh, Dan Pastorini. If you're an older guy, you remember Pastorini. Pretty good quarterback for the Houston Oilers. You say, you mean the Houston Texans. I mean the Houston Oilers. Uh, The Tennessee Titans used to be the Houston Oilers. And Pastorini was a pretty good quarterback. Uh, Some of you guys remember Pastorini. How many of you guys remember Byron Donzis? D-O-N-Z-I-S. Anybody? I've got his obituary here from the L.A. Times. Byron Donzis. Um, I read the L.A. Times a couple times a week. I don't read the whole paper. In fact, I don't read most of the paper. I read the sports page because I like a couple of their sports writers. And I read the obituaries. I really do. I also read the New York Times once a week. I don't read anything in the New York Times except the obituaries. You find some interesting things. You think I'm kidding. I'm dead serious. Uh, here's what I found this week in the... What, what did I say? Oh, I'm sorry. I got a steroid shot yesterday. I really did. It's working. Yeah. I may get another one next week. In 1978, Byron Donzis walked into a Houston hospital looking for Dan Pastorini, the Houston Oilers' prized quarterback who was laid up with three broken ribs from a recent game. Donzis was wearing a trench coat and carrying a large bag. He was accompanied by an associate wielding a baseball bat. Now, these guys wouldn't have gotten past security today, but back then there was no security. They sweet-talked their way past the nurses and into Pastorini's private room. The quarterback thought the two strange men must have lost money on the game and had come for revenge. Instead, Donces introduced himself to Pastorini, said, if you don't mind, we'd like to do something very quickly that'll be a little unusual. By the way, both men were wearing trench coats in Houston. One of the men took a baseball bat, a Louisville slugger, out from under his trench coat, took the trench coat off, and then Byron Donces, who was also in a trench coat, held his arms straight up like this, and the other man took the Louisville slugger and took three swings, full strength, right into his ribs. And Donces never flinched, and he never moved. And then he removed his trench coat, and he took off his invention. A flak jacket. And he showed it to Pastorini, and Pastorini says, how do I get one of those things? (laughs) And everything changed in the National Football League from that day on. Uh, Byron Donzis, why is his obituary in the LA Times? He died last week, wide-ranging inventor, best known for the flak jacket. Now, why would I bring up Brian Donzis? We're going to look at David and his fears. 
And I think here's what happens to us as men. In the Christian life, the Christian life is a hard life. Don't let anybody ever tell you differently. Um, The Christian life is full of struggle. The Christian life is full of adversity. The Christian life is full of hardship. If you read your Bible, you're going to find that out. Uh, and, and see, I say this a lot because you've got to counter, there are, there's a lot of wrong thinking in modern day Christianity. If you're not in a church that really teaches the Word of God, uh, you're in trouble. If you're not interacting with the Bible, there's a lot of wrong stuff being taught about Christianity. There is a whole segment of modern-day Christianity that just talks about everything ought to go your way. You're always blessed financially. You're always blessed with your health. Everything, everything is good. I was flipping through the channels last night, and I hit the, one of the programs that's always on, and this guy's wife was on, and she says, well, today we're going to talk about prosperity. I thought, that's all you ever talk about. They'll never, they'll never teach verse by verse through 2 Corinthians, ever. You know why? It blows their wrong theology to smithereens. Because it's the most autobiographical of uh, Paul's epistles. Starts off, I mean, it didn't take him a few verses. Uh, you remember our affliction in Asia when we were afflicted beyond our strength so that we despaired even of life itself. He was worn out. He was beat up. He was depressed. You remember our affliction in Asia when we were afflicted, watch this, beyond our strength. He had so much stuff in his life, he was out of strength. When we were afflicted beyond our strength so that we despaired even of life itself. If Paul had his druthers, he would have died. That's how depressed he was. That's not prosperity. He'd had the tar kicked out of him, and he was sick and tired of it. And then you read a little further down the road, but God who comforts the depressed. Who's that? Me. All the way through that book. Well, then you find out later about his physical persecution. When Paul took off uh, his uh, when Paul took off his shirt to get in the shower, his uh, his back looked like hamburger because he had been flogged so many times. You know how many times he'd been stoned, big stones, in an attempt to kill him. He had broken bones. He had internal hemorrhaging. Probably whenever uh, he relieved himself, there was blood coming out. He didn't have any antibiotics. He didn't have any pain meds. He lived a life of suffering. Where's the prosperity theology in that? Now, he was a blessed man. He knew where he was going, and God was using him in a remarkable way. But you see, you'll never hear those folks that teach that prosperity stuff teaching through 2 Corinthians. Jesus said, in the world, you'll have trouble. From what you hear them, they say, in Jesus said, in the world, you have prosperity. Now, Jesus said, in the world, you'll have trouble. That's why you've got trouble. In the world, you'll have tribulation. That's why you have tribulation. That's why you're worn out. I quote these verses all the time. Acts 14, 22. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Not some, not few, many. And if you know your Bible, you know that's the normal Christian life. It's not that God doesn't bless us. It doesn't mean that God hasn't given us favor because he has. Has not God been good to us? But see, in this life, it's sort of like a checkerboard. You know, you got two different colors on a checkerboard. And in life, God will give us blessing and favor, but the next square is hardship and suffering. And they're always intermingled. Have you noticed that? You're never pain-free. 
are you? No, not in this life. Now, we're going to be, but we're not there yet. There's a place called heaven. I don't know if you picked up on this. This isn't it. (laughs) But we're going there, and this is preparation for where we're going. But we're not there yet. This is the workout. This is the gym. We do a lot of sets. We do a lot of reps. Uh, We do a lot of sweating. You get tired. You get exhausted. It's pretty much like uh, two-a-days in football in August, if you remember that. And then you get a break. It's, it's not always that way, but a lot of it is that way, guys. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Philippians 1.29, it has been granted you not only to believe in Christ, but to prosper for his sake. It's not what it says. It has been granted to you not only to believe in Christ, but to suffer for his sake. Okay. It's in the Bible. So, you see, if you think that's not in the Bible, you're going to be shocked. But if you know it's in the Bible, you can kind of be prepared for it. You see? All right. Now, let's talk about fear. Because here's what happens, I think, to a lot of guys. So much of the Christian life... So much of the Christian life is fighting off fear. I think a great portion of the Christian life is fighting off fear. You see two themes all the way through the Bible. Uh, you can almost say on every page of the Bible you're going to find two concepts. One of the concepts is we walk by faith. We bought walk by faith, we don't walk by sight. We don't know where we're going, we can't see everything. So we're walking by faith. Hebrews says... Um, um, what does Hebrews say in Hebrews 11? Uh, I mean, I am blanking. Um, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction or the evidence of things not seen. God has made certain promises to us, but in your particular situation, you haven't seen the promise come through yet. That doesn't mean it's not coming through. It just means it's not time yet. So you're having to wait upon the Lord. And sometimes what will happen is you will get fearful that this, God's never going to deliver me. So see, here's what happens. As we walk through life, we're told we have to walk by faith. Walking by faith is essentially fighting off fear. Isn't it? That's why all the way through Scripture, you'll see fear not, fear not, fear not. Do not fear. So those two things, you see, balance each other. You walk by faith, and when you walk by faith, you're fighting off fear. You're believing the promises of God. You're believing that God will be faithful to you. The fear is, oh, he won't. Yes, but he will. So there's this tension, you see. Here's what happens. Sometimes if, if you get hammered, and sometimes if you're in a particularly difficult time, we're going to see here David dealt with different fears, all kinds of different fears. But here's what happens sometimes. If you've been in a particular time that's been hard and difficult and you've really been crunched, you know what can happen to you? See, there's all kinds. There's fear of failure. There's the fear of uh, uh, insignificance. Uh, there's a fear of, uh, oh my gosh. Uh, some guys have social anxiety. They're, they're, they're uncomfortable. They get fearful in groups. You know, there's all kinds of fears. I mean, a psychologist here could give us 50 of them right off the top of his head. You know what happens to us sometimes when we've been through a hard time, a real stretch of difficulty? You know what happens is 
we get fearful of what's coming next. Don't we? Yeah, we do. You know what happens to me every year between Christmas and New Year's? I get a little apprehensive. Every year, it happens to me. And every year, I know it's coming, and I, and I plan for it, and I try to get ready for it. It's, it's, just, it, it, it's just me. But what happens is, if I've been in a stretch, and see, and I know what the Scripture says, you know what the Scripture says, and sometimes what will happen is I'll start thinking, I wonder what's going to happen next year. Because I had some stuff happen this year I never saw coming. I wonder what's coming next. You know what it is? See, next year, I know what I've been through this year. Any God get me through it? Yeah. But see, I got this new year coming. See, I know what I've been through, but I got another year, and that's unknown. And what happens is, I can get fearful. See, here's what I want. When I look ahead, you know what I want? I want, what I want is for my, what I want is for my hardship. I want my suffering to decrease. You know what happens? I'm afraid it might increase. You know why Pastorini wanted that uh, flak jacket? And you know why he got out of that bed and got back sooner than anybody could ever imagine? Um... See, if you bust a few ribs, or you're playing football, and you, uh, you have knee surgery, that first game back, you get down in that stance, are you thinking about, uh, are you t- thinking about what block you've got to make? If you're a receiver, are you thinking about your route that you're going to run? You know what you're thinking about? You're thinking about that knee. And you know what you're thinking about? You're thinking, I don't want that knee getting hurt again. I just got over the suffering. I just got out of surgery. I just got out of those, all that time of rehab. And you know what? I don't want that knee. I, I want the pain. It is decreased. I want it to stay decreased. I, want, I don't want it to increase. Now, that happens in the Christian life. If you've had your ribs busted, you're afraid that you're going to bust another rib or another rib. This is what happens. See, it's the, you know what it is? It's the fear of fear. It's the fear of additional suffering. I don't know if this is making any sense to you guys. Because 80% of you are on value. No. I'm just horsing around. I got some. No, I'm just saying. This this all makes sense, doesn't it? Sure it does. Let me show you how this works. Uh, Turn with me to uh, Psalm 27. David dealt with this, we deal with it. Psalm 27, David says, The Lord is my light and my salvation. When he says salvation, it means he, the, the Lord is my Savior. He's my deliverer. He rescues me. And God had done it many, many times. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Watch this. Whom shall I fear? Sometimes we fear people. Sometimes there are powerful people in our lives. Sometimes there are people who are enemies. Sometimes there are people that can do harm to us. There are people that have more authority. There are people that have more power. There are people that have uh, uh, influence in the media. 
there are people that we have worked for that could uh, write a letter of reference and just devastate us. That we have, we we get fearful of people because of their power and because of their position and because of their authority. David says, "The Lord is my light, and my salvation. Whom shall I fear?" Next verse, next line. The Lord, watch this. The Lord is the defense of my life. Whom shall I dread? Sometimes when we lose perspective about people in our lives that have bad intentions towards us, what happens is we can begin to live in dread. We can, we, 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 uh, we're, we're terrorized. Now just think about David's life. When, when Saul, when the Spirit of God was removed from Saul because of his jealousy towards David, because they were singing the song, Saul has slain his thousands, but David is tens of thousands. Now David's on the run. We studied this in the fall. And for at least the next 10 years, David's on the run. Saul has got a thousand men after him. They are combing the hills. He's hiding in the Judean hills. He's hiding in the caves. He's hiding in the gullies. There are times when he could reach out and touch one of the soldiers, but he's burrowed in and camouflaged, and he doesn't know if he's going to live another two minutes. It was that way, not for just days, it was that way for weeks and months, and it extended into years, and then the next year would come, and the next year, and don't you think David wondered to himself, Lord, you've delivered me, but how long is this going to get on, go on? And at the turn of the new year, do you not think he got apprehensive about the next year? How much more suffering? I, I want this to decrease. I'm afraid it's going to increase, and it did. And it did. Was it that way forever? No, but... Maybe 10 years. God was doing something unique in David's life. It wasn't there forever, but it was there for a season. And it was of an individual that he was afraid of. And what he had to do was, he had to keep fighting off fear about a powerful person and walk by faith, trusting in the Lord. The Lord is my light. He is my, del- my salvation or my deliverer. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the defense of my life. Whom shall I dread? The only way you get delivered from the fear of powerful people is to have a greater fear of God than you do of people. The key to being delivered from the fear of man is to have a fear of God. Fourteen times in Proverbs, it talks about the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is not a terror of the Lord. It is an awe of the Lord. That's, that's always the antidote to the fear of man. J.B. Phillips wrote a book 40 years ago, Your God is Too Small. And what we tend to do is that we tend to make people big and we tend, we tend to make God small. This is why you've got to read your Bibles. One of the, one of the things I, I've noticed just reading through the scriptures, and I read through the Bible every year. I've got my calendar, got my chapters, I read through them. And, as you, and every once in a while you'll see a... You'll see a phrase that's talking about an event, something with Daniel or somebody in the scripture, and they've got somebody on their case, and it says, the Lord put a spirit in them. Some powerful person, they're going to go this way, they're going to do, and what did the Lord do? He put a spirit in them. In other words, he said, you're not going that way, you're going this way. That's why you've got to live off the word of God. Who are the powerful people in your life that you're a little bit concerned about? Man, if they did this or if they did that, oh my gosh, what if they did this? Can I tell you something? God runs every one of them. Every one of them he runs. Every one of them he owns. 
Proverbs 21.1. The king's heart is like channels of water in the hands of the Lord. You got that picture? The king's heart, the powerful man's heart, is like channels of water in the hands of the Lord. He turns it whatever way he wishes. All the way through the scripture, you see God putting a spirit, turning somebody's heart, who had the power to do this and this and this. It happened with uh, Jehoshaphat, when that massive army was coming up from Engedi. And there was no way they could stand them off in Jerusalem. And they get all the little kids, they get the parents, and they call out to the Lord, and he talks about the sovereignty of God, I think it's 2 Chronicles 20. And he says, Lord, we are powerless to stop them. There is nothing we can do, but our eyes are on you. Because you can stop them. Oh, and guess what God did? He stopped him. The battle is not yours. The battle is the Lord's. He'll take care of your enemies. How many times are you reading the scripture? You stand back and watch the Lord take care of them. Or sometimes God would say you do this and you do this. But you see, what happens is we, we forget the power of God. We forget who he is. We get our eyes on men. Men are nothing. They're nothing. Their life is like a hand breath. They're just nothing. These powerful, they're nothing. They're pygmies. Herod wouldn't give glory to God. He spoke and they said the voice of a God and God sent worms on him. And he died of his own putrefaction and stench. And there was nothing he could do to stop it. Because God controls men. All men. He controls all things. So now, who are you? Who, who, who is the person in your life that you're plagued with? They can only go as far as the boundaries that God allows them to go. They're a tool in God's hands. They're just a tool. That's all they are. The Lord is the defense of your life. Let's go to, uh, where are we going? Psalm 34. You know, sometimes we get, sometimes so many things happen to us that we, we can absolutely get uh, so worn down. I've been reading uh, a book called Civilization, The West and the Rest by, is it Neal Ferguson? This guy's good. This guy is extremely good. He is a scholar out of Oxford and Harvard and uh, Stanford. Don't ask me how he does it, but this is a remarkable book, and he's basically talking about why Western civilization arose and uh, had the impact it did all over the nations of the world. And basically, at its very core, he said it was because of the Protestant Reformation and belief in the Bible and Jesus Christ. He's not real popular at those schools. <laughs> he was talking about how hard life was in the... Uh, at certain times during, uh, in, in the history of Europe, he was talking about the 15th century, all of the difficulties and the plagues and the diseases, and he writes about one painter, an Italian artist named Salvatore Rosa, who painted a tremendously moving painting called The Human Frailty. It was inspired by the plague that had swept his native Naples in 1615, 1655. Listen to this. Claiming the life of his infant son, as well as carrying off his brother, his sister, her husband, and five of their children. 
is it a tragedy? And it broke his heart. I mean, it was just, he was surrounded by death. So he paints this uh, picture that's known as human frailty. Uh, in, the, in the painting, grin, grinning hideously, the angel of death looms from the darkness behind Rose's wife to claim their son, even as he makes his first attempt to write. The mood of the heartbroken artist is immortally summed up in just eight Latin words inscribed on the canvas and translated in English. And these are on the uh, painting. Here's what it says. Conception is sin. Birth is pain. Life is toil. Death is inevitable. What more succinct description could be devised of life in the Europe of that time? See, they needed the gospel. And that's just about the time everything started breaking loose with the good news of Jesus Christ. That had gotten put into the back closets and the tradition of the Roman Catholic Church began to rule and reign that it was by works that you're saved. And it's not by works that you're saved, it's by grace. And Martin Luther discovered it. And out of that, a lot of wonderful things happened that we don't study anymore. Nevertheless, there was a guy that was in so much pain, he got afraid of what was coming next. That can happen to us, those of us who know Christ. Uh, where are we going next? Psalm 34. Psalm 34 is another psalm. There was a time in David's life, it's in the inscription before verse 1, a psalm of David when he feigned madness before Abimelech who drove him away and he departed. Things got so bad at a certain point for David as he was trying to escape from Saul, he went over to the camp of the Philistines. They were the mortal enemies of, of Israel. And he went over to Abimelech and he sweet-talked Abimelech, the head of the kings, and, and, and then some of the guys said, and, and he actually made friends with him, and some of his advisors said, this is David, he kills us. What are you doing making a pact with him? And they wanted to kill David, and then David started putting on this act that he was insane and mad and started drooling, and they just started making a way to get him out of here. That's how he escaped. His life was on the line. He writes a psalm about it. Look at verse 4. I sought the Lord, and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. He wasn't sure he was going to make it out of there alive. They looked to him and were radiant. He's speaking of his fears. When, when, you, when your fears look to the Lord, when you put your fears in light of who the Lord is, it puts light on your fears. Their, their faces will never be ashamed. This poor man cried. The Lord heard him and saved him out of all his trouble. Verse 7, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and rescues them. So where does your greatest fear need to be? A fear of the Lord. If you have a fear of the Lord and awe of God, his power, his wisdom, God is everywhere. God knows everything. God has all wisdom. God has all power. Is anything too hard for the Lord? No. Beyond the Hubble telescope, as far as it can see, God is there. He owns it. He runs it. You look into a microscope, DNA, those are his fingerprints. The whole world. The earth is the Lord and the fullness thereof. The heavens are telling. I was out, was it last night? Yeah, I was out last night, walked outside just to look around. There's the Big Dipper. You know why Big Dipper's there? God put it there. Those stars, he put them there. He knows them all by name. They're still discovering constellations. They're there because God put them there. 
Black holes, God put those there just to screw them up. <laughs> he runs it all. He owns it all. That's a God to be, you're in awe. And, you're just, and you ought to be just to have a little, you ought to be fearful. You don't want to cross him. You know, my dad loved me. My dad would do anything for me. With my dad, I was safe. With my dad, I was protected. I was secure with my dad. I had a good dad. It wasn't perfect, but he was good. Pretty darn good dad. I was just a little bit afraid of him. Because, you see, my dad meant what he said. If my dad said be home at 11, he didn't meet 11.06. He, he meant be home at 11. So I got home at 11. Once or twice, I didn't. And he had some persuasion techniques <laughs> that re reiterated to me the importance of obedience. And actually, in high school, saved me from some things that could have really messed up my life because I was more afraid of my dad finding out than I was of my friend's popularity and approval. Am I making sense? Come on, Steve, let's go. Nah, I'm going to pass. I knew my dad would find out. He always found out. It wasn't worth it. I'm being dead serious. I had a fear of my dad. Not, a, not, not, not of abuse, not of terror, not of, you know, nothing like that. Uh, Christianity Today magazine came out this past week, and they've taken a stance against spanking children. Evangelical magazine, what do they call it? Christianity Today, a magazine of evangelical conviction. Well, they've been compromising for a long time. And they took extreme cases and talked about it. They're talking about abuse cases. and Anyway, it's a long story. I'll tell you what, my dad spanked me. My mom had a switch. She'd make me go out and get it. She'd make me go out and get a little, little uh, switch. It said switch, it was marked. <laughs> Branch, trunk, switch. I had to go get my own switch. And then I'd come back in. Man, she let me have it. <laughs> she loved me. I got bigger, she'd get a yardstick. <laughs> True. And she'd line us up. And I remember the day she hit us with the yardstick, and I just flexed, and I busted that sucker. I did. I thought, well, I won that one. And I did. Until my dad got home. Never abused us. Never. They loved us. I had a little bit of fear. Healthy. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him. Because, see, when you fear him, He's got your heart, he's got your attention, and you're obedient. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him. And what does he do? He rescues them. Um, go, to, go to Psalm 50. Call upon me in the day of trouble. I shall rescue you and you will honor me. 
If you read the book Robinson Crusoe, written by Daniel Defoe, this is what's called the Robinson Crusoe Psalm. C.H. Uh, Spurgeon did an entire message on this verse. He called it the Robinson Crusoe Psalm. Because when Robinson Crusoe hit bottom on that island, and see, he was raised in the story. His father was a godly man. He went against the advice of his father, didn't listen to his father, was a strong-willed young man like the prodigal, winds up on this desert island. And when everything is taken away and he has no way of surviving, what does he do? He remembers this verse from his childhood, being taught the word of God, and this is what he did. Call upon me in the day of trouble. I shall rescue you, and you will honor me. See, he was full of fear on that day. It was the worst day of his life. He didn't know how he was going to survive. But you call on me. I will rescue you. I will deliver you. See, that's what the Lord does. He's our Savior. Uh, go, back to, uh, go back to Psalm 46. This was Martin Luther's favorite psalm. God is our refuge and strength. He is a very present help in trouble. If you have a New American Standard Bible, they'll give you an alternative reading in the margin of the second line of verse 1. It reads like this. God is our refuge and strength. He is abundantly available for help in tight places. When you're in a tight place, health-wise, when you're in a tight place financially, when you're in a tight place with your business or with a relationship or a thousand different things, when you are in a tight place and you cannot afford to make one wrong step, He is abundantly available for help in tight places. And when we get in tight places, we tend to panic because of fear. And you have to fight off fear, and you have to remind yourself that He is abundantly available to me right now in this tight place, and I don't know what to do. And because of that fact, look at the next line. Therefore, we will not, what? Fear. Though the earth should change. You know, the earth is going to change. You read Revelation. Stuff's going to be coming down out of heaven, hailstones, and they're going to be hiding from God, and they're going to refuse to repent because they don't want to. They will not repent even though they know there's a God and they know they're experiencing His wrath, but they won't, they won't turn. One day the earth will change. We will not fear. I knew I had too much stuff. This always happens to me. Um, go with me. Uh, let's go to First Timothy. Real quick. Actually, we're going to 2 Timothy 1 is where we're going. I, I don't know what, where, where you are, and I don't know what it is that would be number one on your fear list right now. But the Lord does. Some guys deal with fear more than others because of temperament, because of personality. And that's all right. God is the one who makes us. He's the one that constructs us. And in 2 Timothy 1.7, Paul said to young Timothy, who tended to be a guy who was fearful. And he'd been left in a position of leadership by Paul, and he was getting a lot of opposition. 
and he'd always depended on Paul, but now Paul wasn't there. So Paul says to him in 2 Timothy 1.7, For God has not given us a spirit of timidity or fear or of cowardice. So this hot shop, hot shot ship captain, I like what Gary Bauer said yesterday. The captain and some crewmen evidently live by the motto, every man for himself. They save their own skin before lifting a finger to help the women and children on board. Some commentators today are contrasting their behavior to what happened to the Titanic. One hundred years ago, the men on that ship were committed to the moral idea of saving women and children before they saved themselves. So much so, in fact, that proportionally more women in third class survived the Titanic sinking than did men in first class. And that was a class society back then. And they survived because the men with first class tickets stood on the decks helping women and children of all social ranks into the lifeboat. Benjamin Guggenheim, one of the wealthiest men on board, didn't try to buy his way off the sinking ship. He helped load women and children into the lifeboats And then he changed into a tuxedo when the last boat was gone so that he would die like a gentleman. It was reported that he gave this message to a survivor. Please tell my wife I played the game out straight to the end. No woman shall be left aboard this ship because Ben Guggenheim was a coward. Now that's a man. That's a man. Thank God for men. Some of you guys, you got young men out fighting in Afghanistan and in harm's way. And you pray for them constantly. And while you're praying for them, thank God that you got a man. Jesus said, there's no greater love than this than a man give up his life for his friends. And you pray for their safety, and then God will bring them back. But see, this is what men do. God has not given us a spirit of cowardice, but of, watch this, but of power and love and discipline. How do you fight off fear, Timothy? When, when, that, when that timidity, when that fear, when that cowardice comes and you want to run, you've got to grab yourself, and you've got to remind yourself, and you've got to think Here's how you have to think. No, he's given me a spirit of power. What's that a reference to? The power of God, the Holy Spirit. I don't have to fear because my God has all power over all things, all circumstances, all individuals, all factors. There's nothing out of his control. So you have to think. Then he says this. He's given us a spirit of power and of love. Guys, we forget how much God loves us. We forget. And then he says, God's not given us a spirit of fear, but that power and love. And watch this. Watch the next one. And sound what? Thinking. Sound judgment. With your fear, you've got to use sound judgment. Sound judgment about what? About his power. I'm in fearful situations. I'm in a tight place. I don't know how the heck I'm going to get out of this. I don't see any way out. Okay, you don't see any way out. Those are the facts. Deal with the facts. Joe Friday, the facts. Just the facts. That's where I am. All right, then deal with this fact. You've got a God 
who loves you, who has all power. You've got a God who sent his son to die for you, who loves you. Think soundly in your mind about those two facts about the power of your God. That's how you fight off the fear and the panic. A lot of us are projecting out here, man, this is not looking good. I don't want it to go this way. It's not stacking up the way I'm hoping. What if that happens? What if that happens? What if it happens? What if the worst happens? The worst you could ever imagine. David Jeremiah wrote a book. I don't have the title exactly. Ten things I thought I'd never see in my lifetime. We're seeing them all. Thought it would never happen. Let the worst come. He's still your savior. He's still in control. He still has a plan. He'll still be glorified. He'll still take care of you. That's either true or it isn't. Right? Romans 8. We were in Romans 8 last week a little bit. In Romans 8, Romans 8 begins with this truth. If you're in Christ, there is no condemnation. So one of our fears is that I'll be condemned by God. Not if you're in Christ. So the first fear that is dealt with in Romans 8 is that there's no condemnation if you're in Christ. Yeah, but I don't, even after I became a Christian, I still struggle with this sin and this sin. That may be, but there's no condemnation if you're in Christ Jesus. You see. Oh, and then, the, and then Romans 8 ends with the fact that there is no separation from God. Because, see, we fall short even after we're Christians, oh, I keep struggling with this and this. Oh, I'm afraid. And, and certain churches will teach that you're not secure in Christ. He can't save you to the uttermost. You're only saved as long as you're prayed up and all of a sudden you can lose your salvation. That didn't help me at all. I grew up in a church like that as a kid. Every Sunday night there was an altar call. Every night I was down there. I, I'm dead serious. It was terrifying. Because I, I, I see, I, I was always worse sin in my life. How could I ever go to heaven? But I was never, I wasn't taught the entire gospel in our church. See, if you're in Christ, you'll never be separated from Christ. So it begins, Romans 8 begins with no condemnation. It ends with no separation. And in the middle, now why is that true? Because in the middle, you've got a concept called adoption. In knowing God, I've read this book 15 times, maybe 20, maybe 25. I started rereading it again over the break. I'm going to read you a little bit of this. It's so good. Your dad ever read to you when you were a kid? Did your mom ever read to you? I'm going to read to you. Whenever my parents would read to me, I'd go to sleep. Don't go to sleep. This chapter by J.I. Packer is called Sons of God. He says, what is a Christian? The question can be answered in many ways, but the richest answer I know is that a Christian is one who has God for his father. And then he deals with the whole issue of, oh, we're, God's the father of all of us. And that's not true. He says, the gift of sonship to God becomes ours, not through being born, but through being born again. 
As many as received him, to them gave he the power to become the sons of God. Even to them that believe on his name, which were born not of blood, nor of will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. John 1.12. Sonship to God, then, is a gift of grace. It is not a natural, but an adoptive sonship. If you look in Romans 8, in between the first verse and the last verse, you're going to see a reference to the fact twice that we have been adopted. God is our Father, but He has adopted us into His family. It's very important. The reason you'll never be condemned, the reason you'll never be separated if you're in Christ, is that you've been adopted. Now, stay with me. Packer says, Sonship to God is a gift of grace. It is not a natural, but an adoptive sonship. And so the New Testament explicitly pictures it that way. In Roman law, it was a recognized practice for an adult who wanted an heir and someone to carry on the family name to adopt a male as his son, usually at age rather than in infancy, as is the common way today. The apostles proclaim that God has so loved those whom he redeemed on the cross that he has adopted them all as his heirs to see and share the glory into which his only begotten son has already come. Galatians 4.4 says, God sent forth his son to redeem them that were under the law that we might receive the adoption of sons. And according to Ephesians 1.5, we were foreordained unto adoption of sons by Jesus unto himself. Then Packer says, some years ago I wrote this. You sum up the whole of the New Testament teaching in a single phrase if you speak of it as a revelation of the fatherhood of the Holy Creator. In the same way, you sum up the whole of the New Testament religion if you describe it as the knowledge of God as one's Holy Father. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his Father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and the whole outlook of his life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. For everything that Christ taught, Everything that makes the New Testament new and better than the old, everything that is distinctively Christian as opposed to being merely Jewish, is summed up in the knowledge of the fatherhood of God. Father is the Christian name of God. And then he says this. He quotes from the Westminster Confession of Faith. And these theologians work very carefully to distill the essence of the scriptural teaching. Here's what they say in chapter 12 of the Westminster Confession. All those that are justified in Christ, God vouchsafeth. That's a good word. We don't use it often, but we should. All those that are justified, God vouchsafeth. You're safe in his hand. You got a voucher. In and for his only son, Jesus Christ, to make partakers of the grace of adoption, by which they were taken into the number and enjoy the liberties and privileges of the children of God. They have his name put upon them, receive the spirit of adoption, have access through the throne of God with boldness, are enabled to cry, Abba, Abba is the Aramaic, Aramaic term for father, Abba, Father. They are, listen, they are pitied. They are protected, they are provided for, and chastened by him as by a father. Yet they are never cast off, but sealed to the day of redemption, and inherit the promises as heirs of everlasting salvation. Whew. It's all true. 
Psalm 56, 9. See, David got this in the Old Testament. Psalm 56, 9, you know what David says? This I know that God is for me. You know why I'm not going to fear? Because he is for me. We're always thinking he's against me. My gosh, he adopted you. He sent his son to die for you. And when Jesus went to the cross and died for us and paid for our sins and took our wrath, we were justified. Were we not? Therefore, Romans 5.1 Therefore we have peace with God because we've been justified. Justification was a legal act where Christ satisfied propitiation. He satisfied the wrath of God that was due us for our sin. Jesus paid for it. He fulfilled the judicial and legal um, statutes that God the Father required because God is a God of justice. Jesus died in our place. Now, you, can you guys go two more minutes? I mean five. <laughs> I thought you'd go for two. Now listen to this. He says our first point about adoption. And man, I wish I had more time because I'd show you this in Romans 8. It's right in the middle of Romans 8. Okay? You, you can read it later. Our first point about adoption is that it is the highest privilege that the gospel offers. It's higher even than justification. That's a heavy statement. This may cause raising of eyebrows, for justification is the gift of God in which, since Luther evangelicals have laid the greatest stress, we are accustomed to say, almost without thinking, that free justification is God's supreme blessing to us sinners. Nonetheless, careful thought will show the truth of the statement we have just made. That justification, by which we mean God's forgiveness of the past together with his acceptance for the future, is the primary and fundamental blessing of the gospel, is not in question. Justification is the primary blessing because it meets our primary spiritual need. We all stand by nature under God's judgment. His law condemns us. Guilt gnaws at us, making us restless, miserable, and in our lucid moments afraid. We have no peace in ourselves because we have no peace with our maker. So we need the forgiveness of sins, and Jesus did that for us. And as justification is the primary blessing, so it is the fundamental blessing in the sense that everything else in our salvation assumes it and rests on it, adoption included. You guys still with me? But this is not to say that justification is the highest blessing. Adoption is higher because of the richer relationship with God that it involves. Justification is a forensic idea conceived in terms of law and viewing God as judge. In justification, God declares of penitent believers that they are not and never will be liable to the death that their sins deserve because Jesus Christ, their substitute and sacrifice, tasted death, death in their place on the cross. The free gift of acquittal and peace, won for us at the cost of Calvary, is wonderful enough in all conscience, but justification does not of itself imply any intimate or deep relationship with God the judge. In idea, at any rate, you could have the reality of justification without any close fellowship with God resulting. By contrast, this now with adoption, Adoption is a family idea, not a legal idea. It's a family idea conceived in terms of love and viewing God as Father. In adoption, God takes us into his family and fellowship and establishes us as his children and heirs. Closeness, affection, and generosity at the heart of the relationship. To be right with God, the judge, is a great thing, but to be loved and cared for by God the Father is greater. Is it not? There's your solution to fear. God has not given us a spirit of fear. What's your fear, guys? What was, what was freaking me out as I thought about the new year? 
I wasn't thinking straight. I was thinking stupid. I'm in his family. I'm his kid. My gosh. I love my kids so much, I did things for them I shouldn't have done. Made, gave them more than they could handle. So have you. He's a perfect father. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. So what are you afraid of? We forget that he's not mad at us. We for, Listen, in adoption, he came after us. I, I was talking with a publisher and an editor. We were trying to put a book deal together and it kept getting delayed and delayed and delayed. You know why? The senior editor I was working with, he said, Steve, I'm going to Africa to adopt two little kids, two brothers. He and his wife couldn't have kids. He went to Africa. I'll be back in two weeks. He went back in two weeks. He may be another week, another week, another week. He had one, you know, his inner, you know what the hang-up was? He had one of the kids cleared legally. He couldn't get the other one cleared legally. Took six weeks. Legally, he had to get all the paperwork. Legally, it took him six weeks to get it straight. He had to do it that way. It had to be done right. But that way, in no way does that describe the love that was in his heart and his wife's heart for those two little boys. The little boys didn't come after them. They went after the little boys. And he came after us. And we're his kids. And he's got his eye on you. And he's got all power. He knows where you are. He knows who's threatening. He knows all about it. You guys getting this? Is this not great? This is the greatest stuff in the world. He's for you. He's not against you. He's for you. He's on your team. Let's pray. You let us go through hard stuff, Lord, just like we kids, we let our kids go through hard stuff. There are guys in here that have had their sons go to boot camp because they wouldn't listen. They wouldn't respond. Finally, they had to pull the plug on them financially, and there really wasn't an option. And The kid did what he didn't want to do. He went and signed up for the Marines. And he went off, an immature, foolish young man. A few months later, he comes back, and he's completely different because he suffered. Yeah, we suffer, but you watch us. We don't suffer randomly. We don't suffer just because the world's hard. There is a purpose. You, you, you are knocking off the rough edges. You know what we can handle. You know what we can't handle. You, you know when we need a little more pressure here, and you know when we can't take another ounce. You are the perfect father. Every one of our fathers, some of our fathers in here, these guys, some guys had brutal dads. Some of us had great dads, but they were all flawed. And we're flawed as fathers. You're not. You have never made a mistake with us, and you never will. And we don't have to fear what's ahead. Even if we've been in a tough stretch, we don't have to fear because you have all the power in the world to redeem us, and you, and you love us. Romans 8.32 how will he who delivered up his own son not freely give us all things? If we don't have something, it's because it's not for our best. And when we've learned the lesson, you'll give us, Lord. 
what we can handle. So right now, we just stop and we give our fears to you. And we thank you for your amazing love. And we say amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, would die for me? And if you died for me, you'll deliver me from all my fears. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.